you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Beginning reading in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, this text this morning is um, kind of a sobering text, and I think um, one that you know it would be easy to especially as a minister, to just kind of skip the rock across the pond and get the main point and not dive into the details. But I think we'd be doing a disservice uh, if we did that, especially in our day in time. It's a very, very timely passage for us uh, right now, as we'll get into later on. But uh, just by way of introduction, we need to understand the context. So in case you, know, you weren't here and it's been a little while since we covered uh, the previous verses, Back in the same chapter, if you go all the way up to verse 16 and 17, we talked about the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then we talked about in verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So one challenge I want to make to you today is as we go through everything that we're going to talk about today, that needs to be in the back of your mind. That the gospel that we talked about is that we are in need of a righteousness that we cannot provide on our own. And that what Paul is now talking about is all the unrighteousness and ungodliness that's in the world. And so there's, now as we go through that, you know, your mind just continues to sink into how bad the culture is and how bad everything is. And even when we begin to see in the mirror all the ways that we fall short, we have to go back to the gospel and say, God is not asking that we get all of this right. It is not a merit-based system. Aren't you glad of that? That salvation is not a merit-based system. So 
as we go through all of these things that we're going to talk about today in verses 24 through 32. And when we talked about last time in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. If that was the only verse in the Bible, we'd really be in, in trouble because we are ungodly, we are unrighteousness, and in nature, without God acting upon us, we would hold the truth in unrighteousness. We would not be able to have a righteousness of our own. So we must always go back to the gospel. So what we're going to do, we're going to break this passage down into three points this morning. And the first one is exchanging the glory of the creator for the lusts of the creature. Exchanging the glory of the creator for the lusts of the creature. And so that one really is our overarching thought of this whole passage. And that's really the point that Paul is really getting at here at the end of Romans chapter 1. After talking about God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that is really what he's picking up in verse 24 through 32 is this exchange that happens where we exchange the glory of God for the lust of the creature. And then there's evidence of that point, and that is our, our second point is going to be homosexuality, Paul's Exhibit A. So really the overarching theme is this exchange of the glory of the creator for the lust of the creature, but then Paul's going to give us some evidence. And the, the first and primary evidence that he's going to give us is this sin of homosexuality, and we're going to jump into that a little bit and dive into what the Bible says about that, that sin. And then the third one, our third point, is going to be other effects of suppressing the truth of God. And that's where we get into that really long list that I read at the end of the passage. There's so many things in that, that that show kind of the results of what happens when this exchange takes place in the lives of human beings. So when we exchange. So the title of the message is Serving the Creature More Than the Creator. Serving the Creature more than the creator romans 1 24 through 32 so our first point exchanging the glory of the creator for the lusts of the creature it's really interesting how paul does this and we're going to go back to verse 23 just for this one point uh, we, we covered this last time and we talked about this exchange just in a very surface level at the end of the last message we're going to go back to verse 23 and read through verse 28 talking about this exchange but now as i read it this time i want you to notice there are three steps that paul goes through and he does that three times so it's really interesting he's kind of very repetitive he's going to say the same three steps that takes place in this exchange and he's going to do that he's going to talk about that three different times in verses 23 through 28 so think about this exchange or this change that he says takes place in verse 23 it says and change the glory of the in uncorruptible god into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things wherefore god also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed again the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. 
And likewise also the man, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So he reiterates the same three things again in verse 28. So in case you didn't pick up on that naturally as we read it, here's kind of the sequence that Paul goes through, and he does this three times. The first thing that Paul tells us is that human beings exchange God for what God has made. We prefer the creature to the creator. You know, that's, a, that's the real big problem with a lot of people's theology, is that they put too much focus on the creation and on the creature and not enough focus on the creator himself. Uh, if, we, if we have proper theology, our view of God is very big, and our view of man is as small as you could possibly get it. And so when our problem comes in, even with sin, it's when we get an improper view of the creator and we exchange that for the lust of the creature. So human beings exchange God for what God has made, and we prefer the creature to the creator. Then secondly, there is this where it says that God gives us over, or he hands us over. God gives us over then to what we prefer. So in all three instances, there's a, there's a verse in each time that Paul goes through this, this, um, this sequence of thought. There's also a, always in the middle, there's this place where it says, and God gave them over, or God, uh, they were given over, or all of these, these languages like that. So God gives us over to what we prefer. And then third... There's an acting out externally. There's, a, there's an evidence that comes. There's an outward manifestation of the internal spiritual condition of the fallen human soul. And that's where you see these sins that are mentioned. They're given to these things that are unseemly and, and not good. So we see that three times. That's the pattern. So let's go and, and do it very specifically with each, each set. So the first sequence is in verses 23 and 24. They exchanged... In verse 23, it says, They changed or exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So we see very plainly, that's one of the, the times when it's very plainly said on the first part of step one of this sequence. So they, they, um, they put more honor, they put more uh, emphasis on that, those things which are created than they do the creator themselves. Now, step two. Therefore, God uh, gave them over in verse 23. Uh, in verse 24, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own heart. So we see this then, uh, this exchange happens. God gives them over to this uh, terrible exchange. And then step three, uh, so uh, in, in the end of verse 24 is where we see this, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves so there's a result so this internal exchange is taking place god gives over to gives us over to it and then there's a result of that that is seen in an outward action which in this first time through it is to dishonor their own bodies between themselves now the second time he goes through it verses 25 through 27 do you think this is important paul's repeating the same thing three times in a row so in verse 25 Exchange the truth of God, 
who changed the truth of God into a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. Same thing we just read. So that same exchange is taking place. Then in verse 26, for this God cause, God did what? He gave them up unto vile affections. So there's, there's step number two. He gave them over to these vile affections. And then there's an action. For even their women did change the natural use. And I'm not going to read all of that again. Y'all know what it says? It, they, that once the, this exchange took place, God gives them over, then there's an outward manifestation of that. And in this particular case, it's the sin of homosexuality. And then the third step, I mean the third sequence begins in verse 28. It's all contained in verse 28. So I think this is kind of Paul summing up one more time. He says, okay, in case you didn't get it the first two times through, I'm going to sum it all up in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, once again, we don't want to, we don't want to have that proper view of God. We don't want to acknowledge God for who he is. Instead, we want to focus on the creature. Then step two, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And then there's an action, to do those things which are not convenient. So the main focus of our text today is actually not about homosexuality, but it's really about this exchange. It's about um, how that sin, this exchange that we, we make and, and what sin really is, and then he's going to use that, that sin as kind of an example that really shows us kind of in, in just stark contrast the results of when we make this exchange. So what, what Paul is really doing here is he's really defining sin and unrighteousness that he spoke about earlier when he said the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. Well, what is unrighteousness? Unrighteousness is exchanging the truth of God for the things that are not of God, and we do that every time that we sin. So we're really kind of defining sin and unrighteousness that's spoken of in verse 18 for which the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So I'm going to give you a few different definitions of, of sin. Some of these I really like, and then I'll give you some references that we probably won't take time to go and, and actually read, but, but you can go back and read later. This is uh, when John Piper was asked what he thought sin was. This was his definition. Sin is any feeling, thought, speech, or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. You see how that fits in the, the, what we're seeing this morning? I mean, that, that definition fits exactly with what Paul is talking about when he says we've exchanged the creator for the creature. Any feeling, thought, speech, or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. We need to understand that sin is directed at God himself. You remember David in Psalm 51? This is one of the references that I want to go to, Psalm 51, verse 4. But we don't have to turn there. You're very familiar with Psalm 51. David has sinned horribly. But what does he say? Does he say, Lord, I've sinned against Uriah. And, and, I've really, and, and I just feel really bad about that. Is that what he says? He says, against thee, only have I, thee and thee only have I sinned. Right? Our sin is directed at God himself. It is when we think that we know better or we have a better way than God we need to understand that sin is rebellion against God himself that's Genesis 3 very plainly uh, sin is not just a oh an accident it is an act of rebellion against God it is us saying 
that we don't believe the authority of God is really real and right and true. It is us saying that we are God and we know a better way. That's really the truth. So it's like, you know, you put it into an earthly terms, and this really doesn't do it justice, but just to kind of help your thinking, you know, if the king made a decree and you were someone who owed fealty to that king, but you said, I just don't like that one. I think I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to make my own law. Well, then you're making yourself the king, right? You, then that is, that's really rebellion. You're, you're saying that you know better and that your way is better and that your authority, that you have authority to not do what the king says to do. That's rebellion. And so sin is rebellion against God himself. Sin is also an attempt to replace God with our own ways and thoughts and inventions. And that's really what we see in our text today. I love what R.C. Sproul said about this too. He said, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. When you think about sin that way, it takes on a little bit more, um, a little bit more seriousness, doesn't it? An act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. So the main focus of our text, as we said today, is not really about homosexuality. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, actually. But what it's really about is this exchange that takes place when we think that our ways and the way that we feel about things should be more important than the Creator who created all things and created the creatures themselves. Isn't, that, isn't it? You know, it just seems kind of foolish when we say it in that way, that we value the creature more than the Creator. How could that be? How could it be that we would do that? And yet, that's what we see, and that's what Paul says here, this sequence that takes place over and over and over again. We value the creature more than the creator. He gives us over to those things, and then there's this action that takes place, and there's all of these sins that come forth from that. Now, that's, that's the end of point number one. Now, point number two, we said is homosexuality, Paul's exhibit A. So in this... Um, writing of Paul here in Romans 1, 26 and 27, that passage, uh, Romans 1, 26 and 27, is one of the most important, um, important scriptures on this topic, and, and Paul really touches on the reality of the sin of homosexuality, and it's relevant for us for many reasons today, many, many reasons, and it's not something that we should skip over. Many so-called Christian churches have compromised on this issue some have even allowed homosexual men and women into leadership roles in the church as pastors and elders. Uh, I don't know how much you follow other denominations and other churches. This has completely destroyed certain denominations. Um, the Methodist Church being one example of that, where you know most, most of their churches in this area have just basically closed down or they bought the building from the people and made their own church. Or you know, There's a lot of different ways that that has taken place, but it's over this issue. So... While it's sometimes hard to talk about, and I'll try to be as careful as possible because we have little ears, I, and I do want the church to know I did text some parents this morning and say, hey, there's a topic this morning that you need to be aware of because you, your children may have some questions after this. But Christians have struggled to answer questions on this topic, and I think part of that is because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it out of the pulpit. We don't teach about it out of the Bible like that we should and take the stands that we should, and, and the other reason they've struggled to answer questions on this topic is due to the intense and widely accepted charges of bigotry and hatred against those that stand for the truth of God's word about this topic. So if you don't think it's timely, 
just turn on the radio or the TV or look at your phone. You know, we're in the month of June. And this is called now what? Pride Month, right? This is Pride Month. We're going to get assaulted over the next four weeks as Christians. And they're going to just put it out there as much as they possibly can. This is Pride Month. Not only is it sin, but we're, we're proud of this. We're, gonna, we're just going to really stick this in your face, and we're going to really make it, make it really important this particular month. So I do think it's timely that this topic comes up in our exposition of Romans uh, at this very time. I just, just happened to be on Disney Plus uh, the other day looking for something. I forgot what it was, maybe the kids to watch some cartoons or something. I don't know. And I noticed they have pride selections as a category, pride selections. So you can go there and, and, and make sure that, you know, you get some movies that have some, some homosexual characters and, and some naturalization of that uh, to our children of all places uh, where they're trying to make this uh, something that is just second nature to all of us. Now, I'm going to start by borrowing something from Alastair Begg. He summed it up, in my opinion, perfectly in the way that Christians are having to deal with this today. He said the world is telling us as Christians that there's only two options. There's only two options. You either affirm the LGBTQ agenda or you hate the people who practice and affirm this agenda. He said the world wants you to think that that's the only two options. You can either affirm them and say that it's okay or you're somebody who hates. That's it. That, that's your only two options. And here's the problem with that, hate or affirm. The problem with that premise is that as a Bible-believing Christian, we can neither affirm LGBTQ agenda as right and proper or hate the people given over to this sinful lifestyle. Did you know we don't have permission to do either one of those things according to the Bible? We cannot hate those people. We can hate the sin. We cannot hate those people. We cannot act against them in ways that, that God would not have us to do. We can't be ungodly in the way that we react to it. But at the same time, we absolutely cannot affirm it either. The Bible gives us no leeway to affirm this sin. And the Bible also gives us no permission to hate individuals bound in this sin. Now, I'm going to start off by saying this. Homosexuality is a sin, just like any other sin. Um, do we have a problem with adultery in America today? Yes. Do we have a problem with fornication in America today? Yes. And those are sexual sins, just like homosexuality. So it is no different than those sins in the eyes of God. And yet, Paul says, there's a reason Paul uses it, and we're going to get to that in a minute. I think it's one of the most stark pictures of this exchange that takes place. And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more. It's very hard not to get ahead of myself on this one. But So there are people, probably who you know, who have homosexual desires, and they fight every day to remain faithful and obedient to God. And many more people that we would say that we know, um, either as acquaintances or maybe in our families, who are given over in this sin. So we need to know how to deal with it in the right way, in a biblical view, in a biblical way of dealing with this sin. The reality of, of homosexuality is, is really inescapable today. Whereas in the old times you didn't hear about it a whole lot, that's over. That's over. Our culture has turned a page in that, and this is something you're not going to be able just to escape and, and put on the back burner and not worry about and not come to terms with as a Christian. Uh, so that would not, here's the, here's the amazing thing. Do you know that would not shock the Apostle Paul? It wouldn't shock him. 
He's dealing with it here. When he wrote this in Romans, he's dealing with it here. It wouldn't have been a shock to him, and it shouldn't be a shock to us. But one of the things that is a little unusual today is that there has been a changeover. Instead of just kind of, you know, saying it's, it's an extra biblical opinion of mine, there are some now who try to actually defend the, legitima the legitimacy of this behavior from the Bible itself. And the most common, and I don't want to go through every different way that they do this, but the most common is the claim that the denunciations of homosexuality in the New Testament are not references to committed long-term relationships, um, which these people say are legitimate, but rather to promiscuous uh, relationships which are not legitimate. In other words, if, if uh, two men have a long-term relationship and they get married and everything, then the Bible's okay with that. Well, I hate to tell you that that's wrong. <laughs> uh, Paul is very plain here, and there's other places that we can turn to in Scripture that are going to be very plain about that that's not the case at all. With regard to our own text this morning, some would argue that what Paul is denouncing is that uh, there is this um, sense that it's, it's uh, when, when heterosexual people involve themselves in homosexual behavior. That's also not true. Very plain from our text that that's not the case. It says there women change the natural functions for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also men abandon the natural function and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men, committing indecent acts. So if that was the case, this desire would not be there. So there's major problems with these ways of inter interpreting the scriptures, and I, I will mention them because the last one that we mention is going to take us into the overall exposition of, of our text, which is this exchange that takes place. So first, the first thing we want to, to see, and, and many people make this argument, have you ever heard anybody say, and they make the argument, that uh, those who are in this sin are born that way, quote, unquote. They're born that way. So they turn it into a classic nature versus nurture debate. So if you don't know what nature versus nurture is, it's a debate in science about many things, which, and this is basically the case. Uh, are you born that way, or is it your environment that turns you into a particular way? So nature versus nurture, let's take it out of that realm for a minute, put it in something else. Let's say that you're a person who has a horrible temper as an adult. Well, were you born that way? Is it your genes making you that way? Or, it's or is it because of the environment that you were raised in and how you were raised that it's turned you into an extremely angry person? Well, I think in the answer in a lot of cases is a lot of times it's, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think as, as someone who's in education, that's a huge debate for us in education in my field and when I was in my master's work we did a lot of talk about nature versus nurture so is is it that God made them that way and so then therefore it must be okay how can we say that it's wrong if God made them this way that's the argument and it's crucial for dealing with the origins of homosexuality but here's the truth and this is not we're going to um, step away from scripture for just a second since they're making a scientific argument so far after many, many studies and many, many, many attempts to find it, there is no conclusive biological evidence for a predisposition to same-sex attraction. They've tried, believe me, because they, they, they see that as the golden key. Boy, if we can find that, then we can prove that, that well, it's, it's not there. And the last study that was done had over a million participants in the study. So they're trying really, really hard to say that there's DNA or genes or there's evidence biologically of a predisposition to same-sex attraction. 
Well, here's what I want to do. I want to say, let's say that next week they find that. Let's just say that they find this gene and it gives you a predisposition to same-sex attraction. Would this imply, what would this imply about the morality and fitness of this behavior according to the Bible? Well, the truth is absolutely nothing. Do you know that? Did you know that there's genes that predispose people to be serial murderers? Do we say that's okay? Do we say that, well, because they have this, that it's okay to just go out and just mass murder people? Well, of course not. Of course we don't. So the logic really, even if that were to be the case, which it's not, it still wouldn't matter. It would still, we would still say that nature itself is disordered and in need of redemption. Isn't that what Paul's saying in this whole passage? He's saying that, look, uh, what we need is a righteousness that we don't have because of the earth is a fallen place. So nature itself is fallen. This world, in case you didn't know this, the world that we're living in right now is not the, the, the paradise that God created when Adam and Eve lived on the earth. It's a fallen world. Every aspect of this creation has been affected by sin. And so because of that, that argument really is a moot point. So then we, we have to talk about, well, what is natural? Because Paul uses the argument that they're going against nature, right? He's saying that this is unnatural. They have misused the natural use, and they're doing something that is unnatural. So what is natural? And that's a, that's a debate that some people want to have, and that's where you get into this exchange. We would defer, determine nature, what is natural or normal, in a world where God is the creator and the designer of life, natural means in sync with God's purpose and design. All right? And, and just that's it. All right? Don't have to talk about biology. We don't have to talk about anything else. In a world where God is the creator, natural or normal means in sync with God's design. Purpose and design. In sync with God's purpose and design not just anything that has physical causes having a physical root doesn't make anything right physically based aggressive tendencies that might lead to violent behavior but we don't condone it physically based um, laziness or you know those tendencies lead to people being lazy and neglect but we don't condone that a melancholy melancholy personality may lead to suicidal thoughts but we don't say that that's affirmed in the bible an anxious bent may lead people to paranoia. That's anti-Bible. Addictive tendencies may lead to alcoholism or bondage or gambling or smoking, other things. But we don't condone that. In other words, in a fallen world where sin infiltrates every aspect of every part of our life, it, sin has permeated. When we say total depravity, we mean it, right? Sin has infected every area of life. And because of that, because of that, we see these unnatural things. And, and one of the, the kind of poster children for that is the sin of homosexuality. That's why Paul makes that kind of his, his big point in the middle of this passage. So having a physical base or root is not sufficient reasoning for condoning anything as being natural or good. Uh, but then sin, we need to understand that sin has marred creation. So Paul speaks also, and we're not going to go to these other passages, but I just want you to know that the Bible is pretty clear about this. Paul also speaks about homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and in 1 Timothy 1, 10. Um, Leviticus 18, 
uh, verse 22 is another place you can go in the Old Testament where this sin is called an abomination. It is something that should not be even considered or done. So then the last thing I want to mention about other passages is many people say, well, Jesus lived on the earth for all of those years. He went through his whole earthly ministry, and he never mentioned homosexuality. Well, number one, we don't know that. Um, remember what John said at the end of the Gospel of John? What did he say? He said, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. So that's number one. So number one, we don't know that. But now, is it recorded in Scripture where Jesus point blank just says in red letters in our King James Bible that homosexuality is in? No, it doesn't. However, however, Jesus affirmed marriage between one man and woman in the Gospels in multiple occasions. And that's all I need to know. Okay? God, Jesus was very plain that that was what he viewed as the proper relationship between male and female. So Jesus did speak on the topic, just not in those terms. So those are places you can go and, and see more things. But secondly, we said the first one is we're born this way. Secondly, and, and more importantly, I think this, this topic is important because it's the reason Paul focuses on homosexuality in these verses is that it's the most vivid picture of the relationship between marriage and Christ and the church. So we learn from Paul in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, from the beginning, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood existed to represent or be a picture of God's relationship to his people and, and Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. Now in this picture, the man represents God or Christ and is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The woman represents God's people or the church. So the coming together of man and wife in the covenant of marriage represents pure, undefiled, loving relationship of Christ and his church. But instead, we have exchanged the glory of God for images, especially of ourselves. The beauty of God's design has been destroyed. Homosexuality is the most vivid form that kind of expresses that breakdown. God and man in covenant relationship is re represented by male and female in covenant relationship. But the disorder can also manifest itself in other ways. We need to remember that as well. So that's why I think Paul chooses this sin at this time in this passage to really bring this up as a topic is because it's such a vivid picture of how we distort the design and the purpose of God and we make it our own and we try to say it's okay. That is, that is plainly what Paul is, is using this for in this passage. Now, I think it's also important to, to mention, and I've already mentioned a little bit, we must find a biblical balance between a, a clear conviction about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior on the one hand and compassion and, and coming alongside those who are fallen in sin on the other. And I'm going to tell you, that's very, very difficult. Uh, Beck and I were talking about it on the way to church this morning, and I said, you know, I think, I think everybody breaks down into one of those two categories as Christians. People who are Christians in their right mind, you break down into one of these two categories. Either you struggle with a need to affirm, or you struggle with hatred on the other hand. And pretty much, almost everybody falls into one of those camps. And for me, it's this side, pretty, pretty strongly. You know, it just... It's something that it, it just, you know, for me personally, 
is something I really would struggle with. You know, being able to minister to someone who's in that is really difficult for me. But God says we're not allowed to hate. We're, we're to reach out with the gospel to those who are fallen in sin, regardless of what that sin is. And we're to minister to them. So we have to have a biblical balance. Remember uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives this whole list. I mean, if you want to feel, you know, like you live in a perfect church, don't read Corinthians, okay? Because Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, and in, in chapter 6, this is the list of things that Paul says that are uh, things that are uh, against God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. But that's not where he, he's not talking about, you know, and you think, man, what a list. Those are horrible people. But then what does Paul say? Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Just because someone has fallen into the sin of homosexuality does not mean that God cannot wash them in the exact same way that he washed you from your sins. It is no deeper of a sin. It is no different in God's eyes than the sin, than any of the sins that we commit on a daily basis. You remember our definition of sin? What did it say? Anything, that, anything at all that comes from a heart that doesn't treasure God above all things. That's a very high standard, right? So we cannot get on our high horse and say, well, we're not going to have anything to do with these. You know, the Westboro Baptist Church, such a bad name that they give to Christians. They go out and they pick it, and, you know, they, they use slurs against these people, and we hate, and God hates these people, and God hates you, and that is not what the Bible teaches us on how to interact with those who are lost in sin. We're to instead come alongside them. So I do think biblical balance is, is greatly needed. And we're neither to affirm or to hate we're justified sinners who are battling together for all of us to walk in purity and you have your battles and i have my battles and those battles may be different but we're both justified sinners trying to walk together in purity we want to be christians that can minister to someone who is overtaken in this sin never condoning never overlooking but ready to speak the truth in love and come alongside that person to help them reorder their lives in this area. When God saved you, when you were born again, I don't know, maybe that happened when you were a child, and so maybe this isn't a crystal clear thing to you. But for those of you who maybe were converted a little bit older, was there some reordering of your life that had to take place when you committed to follow Jesus Christ? Well, even if you didn't know it, I'm going to tell you there was. There was some reordering that had to take place. So that's, that's the goal when we minister to those who are overtaken in this fault of homosexuality is that we help them reorder their lives in this area and live obediently um, in, um, in obedience to what God says in the scriptures. And I think that happens in, in really two ways. Either God helps them to reorder their own mindset and live in accordance to the way that he would have them to, to live, which is heterosexual relationships, or to live celibate for the rest of their life and to battle against those desires that they have for the rest of their life and live in singleness, in obedience to Christ. That's the two ways that that takes place. The church can never 
ever condone this lifestyle among any of its membership. Uh, it cannot be exalted uh, among our people. It can't be shown as an example before our children. None of those things are acceptable. But if people reorder their lives, we should, we should be coming alongside them to disciple them and help them in that work. Now to parents or parents-to-be specifically, I think it's good to mention this for you. If your children are still small or you don't have children yet, you're going to be having children in the coming years, realize that in large measure their healthy understanding of sexuality hangs mostly on you. Your healthy attention, your healthy teaching and loving, and I, say, and I think this is especially true for fathers, um, for both boys and girls, the development of a healthy view of biblical manhood and womanhood hangs more on strong male leadership than anything else. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, it, it's just the truth. So fathers, a lot of this hangs on you. Be the leader in your home in both word and action. Let them see what a proper relationship looks like in your home. Speak to them about these things. Don't be afraid of the topic. Um, I tell parents this all the time. You know, things will come up at our school, and the parents will come in, and we'll be talking about something. And I say, look, if you're not talking about it, somebody is. Somebody's talking about it. You better get ahead of that and, and, and be biblical in the way that you address these things. So parents, it's very important in our day and time with the way that our culture has gone that you address this head on uh, with, with your children. So Paul brings up this, this horrible sin as a, as a picture of this exchange that takes place. And then he's going to go on in our third point are the other effects of suppressing the truth of God in verses 28 through 32. So after he leaves that topic, he says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then we have a really long list. Listen to this list. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents. Isn't that interesting that that made the list? Children, if you don't think that it's a pretty big deal that you're obedient to your parents, it's in the same list with murder and, and all of these other horrible haters of God, all these other horrible things disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. So all of these things that he says are also, so if you were coming through this passage with us today, and we talked about this horrible exchange, and we talked about Paul uses homosexuality and the sin of homosexuality as this picture of, of just kind of the most vivid realization of that, that exchange, and you're thinking, well, I feel pretty good about this. You know, I've, I've never had that problem. I've never had that sin. You're somewhere on that list, okay? <laughs> you're going to find yourself at the end of this passage somewhere on that list. So these are the other effects of suppressing the truth of God. It's the same thing. If you are falling into one of these sins, you could take any one of them. Let's just take one that probably everybody in here at time, one time or another has been had a problem with. He says, proud. Okay, if you've ever had a problem with pride in your life, it's because your view of God is improper and you are exalting the creature above the creator. Okay, and we could take anything on that list and say the exact same thing. 
It's just the reason Paul uses homosexuality as such a, a in-your-face view of it in the middle of the text is because it just kind of makes the point extremely, extremely well. But any that works for any of the things that are on this list. This is why what Paul means by the wrath of God being revealed, God's wrath being revealed against the world as, as humans all over the world set their affections on other things more than on God. Paul's teaching about why societies um, often kind of fall into unrestrained destructive evil is, is really not like any analysis that you would probably read today. So when Paul says, hey, this, this is what society is doing and the reasons why, the reasons that Paul gives are not the same reasons that you would probably live, uh, view today. Most people today would say, well, okay, America, you've made your choices. You've decided to go with relativism and, and new age thought and postmodernism and amorality. So you've made your bed. Now just you got to sleep in it. All right? And that sounds right. You know, to us, it kind of sounds right. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, that view is based in a false view of a sovereign God of the universe. Kind of our fault. We did it. We caused it. It's, it's getting worse because of us, all of these things, when really that's acting like, well, God's kind of lost control of it, right? God's just sitting back, and, and things are just getting worse and worse, and, but that's not the case. Remember in our, in our um, little sequence that we had in the beginning, you remember we said there's this exchange that takes place, and what was step number two? God gave them over. It's not that God has lost control in America. That's kind of what they would like you to think. It's absolutely not the case. God has not lost control. God is in control. God has given them over to a reprobate mind. So what he actually says, what Paul actually says, is not what you would normally hear today, but it's even more disturbing about this wrath of God that is being revealed among those who are making this exchange. He gives this analysis kind of in four steps. He says, first, that the root problem is that we don't like having God in our knowledge. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. We don't like to have God as a factor in what we believe is true and right and good. We want to make our own decisions on those things. That is the very essence of the human condition. We don't want God. We want to be God ourselves. We want self-determinism and self-exaltation. And here's what's so hard about that, and you've heard me mention this out of the pulpit before. As Americans, I think this is really difficult for us because we have a bent to self-determinism, right? And, and there's part of that that's actually not wrong. There's part of that that's actually a good thing. But taken to the extremes, it can really become a problem, and especially when it gets to self-exaltation. But that was the first sin in the garden. What did Satan say? God's keeping something back from you. He just don't want you to. He just don't want you to. You could be as God, right? If you just do this, you'll be like God. That was a terrible lie. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's still a liar today. We do not want to know God or have him in our lives. So that's the root problem number one in verse 28. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Next is that God then withdraws his common restraints on our rebellion and gives us over to a reprobate mind. He says in verse 28, And God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You know, I think it's important for us to understand that there are restraints that God has on the wicked or, or things would be 
I, mean, I don't think you could even imagine. But God's control over the, the world and his common restraints uh, keep that from being the depth of our sin um, would be almost unthinkable. But this is not what you would hear today is that Paul is giving us over. You wouldn't hear that. Most people don't want to acknowledge that. And the third step is that the effect of God's giving us over and removing those common restraints is that we are then, we become imprisoned by a depraved mind. God gave them over to a depraved mind or a reprobate mind. Our minds become more and more defective in sin. Not only do we use them to sin, but we can't even think clearly about sin. So it gets to the point that we don't recognize sin as sin. Would you say that's true in our culture today? That truth is called error and error is called truth. Those things which are sinful are called good. That which is good is called sinful. It's exactly what they use against us in this um, concept and this, this problem of the LGBTQ plus agenda in America is that they're doing that. They're saying that good, that evil is good and that good is evil. They're saying, see, that the first thing is is that evil is good. They're saying that these practices and this lifestyle is actually a good thing. And it's a, it's a self-determination. It's you figuring out who you really are. So it's actually a good thing. But then they also call good evil. Those who speak the truth about it, you become evil. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're somebody who, who has no love in your heart. How can you call yourself a Christian if you speak out against this lifestyle? So we're there in that third step. We don't even recognize because we've been given over. And then last is that our defective mind produces all different kinds of evils. That list, by the way, is not comprehensive. Did you know that? Paul gave a lot. There's a lot. I meant to count them so I could tell you how many there were, and I didn't. So maybe you can go back and do that and just write it in your notes. But Paul gave a bunch of different things, and that's scratching the surface. Uh, there's, there's many more. So we asked the question, what is this list of evils, and what are we to make of this long list and, and I'm not going to read it again. But God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all of these different things. So what's the point of Paul in listing all of these things? I think the point is, is to give us enough examples to show that virtually every form of evil has to do with an improper view of God and comes from failing to know him and exalt him and love him above all other things. That's the point of the passage. He gives us this long list of evils to show us that the destruction and the debasement of any area of life is owing to the forsaking of a proper view and understanding of who God is. They did not want to know God in their knowledge. Therefore, and then the list. The connection is really twofold. Every sin is rooted in our preferring something else to God, and all these sins get worse as God takes away his restraints and gives us up to sink in the swamp. So how then, I don't want to leave you there, <laughs> so how do we battle destructive evils? So how do we battle against this? What is the solution? How do we battle back against these destructive evils in our own lives and in our own culture? Because here's the truth. I think there's, there's two views of this that are really being prevalent right now among Christian churches. There's the hide your head in the sand view, and let's just let the storm pass, and we're going to keep to ourselves and we're not going to say too much, and we're just going to ride this thing out. Or there's the people who say, no, we've got to speak into the culture. 
And I'm going to tell you, I think it's very plain from the scriptures that we're to be the people who speak into the culture. It's not right for us to bury our head in the sand and not speak out on these issues that are of so much importance. So how do we then do that? How do we battle back? How do we, um, how do we battle against these destructive evils, not only in our own lives, but also in the culture? We need the satisfaction of God's wrath against our unrighteousness. That's what mankind needs, right? We need the satisfaction of God's wrath against our unrighteousness. So that's going to drive us right back, and that's Paul's whole purpose in the entire end of this passage, from verse 18 all the way to verse 32. All Paul is doing is driving you right back to verse 16 and 17. He's driving you back to the gospel. In other words, the righteousness that God demands from us and the holy and proper view of who God is and how God would have us to live is impossible for us to do on our own. We cannot do it. We're going to fall short every time. But the good news of the gospel is that God freely gives us His righteousness. So we are not under the wrath of God anymore. Romans 8, I know Primitive Baptists love that chapter for good reason. But how does Romans chapter 8 begin? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God against the unrighteousness of man is not upon us because we have the righteousness of Christ. Our unrighteousness was placed on him. His righteousness was given to us. So because of that, he also freed us not only from the penalty of sin, and this is where the battle takes place, and we said, how do we battle against this? How do we do this? Well, not only did he take our unrighteousness and deal with that, he also dealt with the power of sin over us. So because of that, this depraved mind that we, we handed over is being transformed. Romans six seventeen. Thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart, from the heart to the form of teaching which you were to which you were handed over. I use a different translation on purpose. That word handed over. Guess where else it's used? That we're handed over to this new teaching of God. It's the same word that's used in Romans when he said he handed them over to a reprobate mind. But we as God's people have been handed over to a transformed mind. So because of that, we battle against these things. And it's not a perfect thing. It doesn't happen all at once. But we are being transformed. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what, is, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's how we battle against these things. Now to sum it all up. That's a lot in one message. To sum it all up, we go back to the very beginning. Paul's main point here is to drive us back to the gospel by showing us what sin really is. Sin really is exchanging the glory of God for the lust of the creature. Those things that are the lust of the creation, all of them are temporal, insignificant, and, and you know, as been said before, cotton candy pleasures of this world, they're going to... They're going to fade away very quick. But the things of eternal God, the glory of God, will be revealed throughout eternity.
what a terrible exchange that we don't want any part of. So instead, we want to be renewed, renewed in our mind that we may prove what is that acceptable will of God. If you have never followed Jesus Christ, if you have never publicly professed faith in him, Paul says that everything that we've been talking about, this is what Paul says back in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. If you've never publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ, that's the, that's the first step. And you need to be baptized. And you need to join with his people. And you need to be taught. And you need your mind to be renewed by the word of God. And you need to follow Jesus Christ, and you'll never regret it. There'll never be a day that you'll look back and, and, and regret that you followed Jesus Christ.